0: My name is Brian, and I'm the lead pastor at Grand Valley Church. We hope that this message helps you explore faith and connect with Jesus. We're continuing our series called Simply Kingdom, where we're looking at some of the parables that Jesus taught about the kingdom of heaven. Now, a parable is a story. It's a way of teaching someone something by telling them a story and inviting them to kind of put themselves in the story to figure out which character might they be, or what can they learn from it? And a parable requires us to dig in a little bit. In fact, a parable is a story with a point. There's always a teaching. There's always an application. There's something in there to learn. And Jesus used parables because they were a good way to talk about something that would invite people into understanding the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, Vicky talked last week about how each parable gives us an opportunity to evaluate our perspectives and see if they align with the kingdom of heaven. Because our perspective will shape our priorities, and our priorities will shape our actions. And the kingdom of heaven, as we're going to talk about and learn more about today, is something that requires us to take action, that requires us to be involved. And so we're going to dive into that today. Now, something that's so amazing and impresses me about Jesus is just the way that he taught. The way that he would convey information, the way that he would inspire people to see things in a new way really stands out in the gospels that we have. We have four books of our New Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that tell us about Jesus' life and what he did during his ministry. And today we're going to be in Matthew for our scripture passages. And I want to start with the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So this is a time when Jesus had gathered a whole bunch of people around him. Crowds were following him. In fact, he couldn't quite go into cities because there was, he would get mobbed with people wanting to hear from him. And so early on in his ministry, he sits down on the side of a mountain and he starts to teach. And the, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 contain this long teaching. And at the end of it, Matthew records the crowd's response And Matthew writes, he says, When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. Now, Matthew is setting up something that's going to happen throughout his gospel and throughout all four gospels, that there is a conflict brewing between Jesus and the religious leaders. In fact, Jesus, the way he taught this new understanding of God, was at odds with the religious leaders. And in fact, during his ministry, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they rejected his teachings because Jesus didn't align with their understanding of their scriptures and their law. And eventually that would lead to the conflict that caused them to have Jesus arrested and have charges brought against them. Because what Jesus was trying to do was trying to bring change into their world. He was trying to bring a new understanding of who God is, a new way of living in a relationship with God. And change is difficult. In fact, this is something today that we all know very well. Adapting to constant change is difficult. But when it comes to change, I think there's really two forms of change that we experience there's an external change is when the change is decided for us it's kind of forced upon us and we have to figure out how to adapt how to grieve what we've lost and how to accept and figure out how we're moving forward and externally external force change is tough but internal change is something that we decide for ourselves it's when we make a choice that we're going to make a difference, that we're going to start a new habit or we're going to put a habit aside. And internal change is something that we have chosen that we want to do. And we usually focus on internal change because internal change, I think, is a lot more effective in the long run than external change. And in fact, there's a a quote that I've often uh, read and talked about and it comes from a guy named John C. Maxwell who is a, a guru on leadership and a pastor. And he put it this way. He said, people change when they hurt enough they have to change or they learn enough that they want to change or they receive enough that they are able to change. Now, sometimes when the pain of not changing becomes greater than the pain of going through the change, that's when we hurt enough that we make a change in our lives. But the second one is actually, I think, the most common, when we learn enough, when we gain a new piece of wisdom, a new insight, and it makes us decide to make a difference. But this third one is important, too, and it says we receive enough. And that means we have to be able to have the means to make a change in our lives. In fact, one of those things sometimes is that we need to give people the grace to be able to make a change. In fact, on my mom's side of the family, I'm the youngest of all the cousins. And that means I also have the unique honor of growing up, I was the one who crashed the go-karts the most. And so when I got my learner's license, I got endlessly teased about watching out for ditches and watching out for Harrow Bars and all the things that I'd crashed go-karts into. But that was all in good jest. But part of it hurt a little because I wanted them to realize that I had grown up from who I was when I was crashing go-karts as a kid to now being 16 and having my learner's license. So sometimes we have to give people the grace to be able to change. Now, internal change, like I said before, is always more effective. So how do we teach to help people take on an internal change? And this is something that Jesus did masterfully well. And he did it by using parables, these stories with a point, because a parable As a way of making us consider something that we might have dismissed if we were told directly. You can say something in a parable that if you had said outright, the person may just dismiss outright and refuse to listen. And I think that's why Jesus used these so often. And so we're going to jump ahead in Matthew's Gospel and go to Matthew 21 and look at one of these parables that, that Jesus told to make a point that that really angered his listeners. And this one happens during the last week of Jesus's life on earth. This happens during the last week when he's in Jerusalem. He's often teaching at the temple. The religious leaders by now are watching Jesus like a hawk. They are trying to find something, anything, to trap Jesus and to get rid of him. And so these religious leaders approach Jesus and they try to trick him with a question and Jesus responds with another question that kind of shuts down their question. And then Jesus tells them two parables. And these parables, they're pretty blunt. They're, they're to the point and they get the point across pretty straightforward. And so I'm going to read you the second of these two parables and I'm just going to read it exactly as Matthew write, wrote it down in his gospel. It starts like this in Matthew 21, verse 33. Jesus says to the religious leaders and the crowds around him, he says, now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard and built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one and stoned another. So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But when these tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir to his estate. Come on, let's kill him, and let's get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, they grabbed the son, dragged him out of the vineyard, and murdered him. Now let's pause for a second here. When we look at a parable, we can ask two questions. Who's in this parable? What are these characters in the parable trying to reference? And in this one, uh, it's pretty obvious when we know a little bit about who Jesus is telling this parable to that the certain landowner is God. And the tenant farmers are the religious leaders who have been entrusted with caring for and tending to and harvesting from this vineyard. And then the servants are the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures, the prophets of our Old Testament, who came to speak to the religious leaders and often were treated very poorly. Many of them ended up killed. And then the son. Well, the son in this one's pretty obvious too. That's Jesus. That the father has sent the son. The father himself has stepped into the world to go to this vineyard. So what are they trying to do? What do we think maybe Jesus is getting at? Now, when the sun approached, the tenant farmers thought that if we kill him, then there will be no heir to this vineyard, and we will get it from the owner, and it will be ours. They were trying to manipulate the system for their own gain. And so then Jesus continues this parable, and he continues by asking a question of the religious leaders around him. So now he's stepped out of the story, and he's asking a question about the story to the religious leaders. He says, when the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asked, what do you think he will do to those farmers? And so the religious leaders replied, he will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. So maybe you've noticed this already, but Jesus has got the religious leaders of the day. See, the religious leaders of the day, They were the only group that Jesus ever spoke harshly to. In fact, at one point, he called them the blind leading the blind, that they did not understand God, that they did not understand their own scriptures, because if they did, they would have recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised anointed one who was coming. And so when the religious leaders respond to Jesus' question and say, well, the owner's going to show up and put these wicked men to a death, and then lease the vineyard to someone who will treat it properly. Then Jesus replies with this, and he quotes scripture at them. He says, Then Jesus asked them, Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. And so Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23, when he says this. He's saying that the stone the builders rejected, what the builders cast away and said, that's not good, has become the cornerstone. The the cornerstone was the first stone that would be placed in any construction project. And everything would be built out from that cornerstone and upon the foundation built from that cornerstone. Jesus is saying that what you've rejected has now become the core. And then Jesus goes on and he Explains the parable just a little further to these religious leaders to make sure they get the point. He says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a people that will produce the proper fruit. See, Jesus used parables to teach the religious leaders something they had already rejected and ignored. In fact, Matthew continues and he gives a little bit of of commentary on this. And he says, when the leading priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. See, this kind of encapsulates the conflict that's been brewing through the Gospels between Jesus and the religious leaders, because Jesus has been trying to teach them that there is a better way than how they've interpreted their law. In fact, he's trying to teach them something that contradicts what they've spent their entire lives learning from the people who taught them. And even though the origin of the Pharisees was something very noble and good, and despite their best intentions, they had become something that they had not intended to become. And Jesus was calling that out and pointing that out. And it's actually the same way in our lives. Sometimes we actually have to be taught something new that corrects what we've already learned. Sometimes we have to learn that, that maybe things aren't as simple as we thought they were. And so we actually have to change. Or, or maybe we read something somewhere once and we thought it was true. And then later on we read something that, that changes that and, and contradicts the first. And then we're stuck in this moment of saying, well, which one do we believe? Where do we find truth? Now, whenever that question comes up, whenever we have two things in front of us that conflict, or maybe when someone's correcting us or we've read something in Scripture that's correcting us, we have to figure out what are we doing with what we've already learned. And there's a concept, there's a a bias that psychology teaches us about called confirmation bias. And confirmation bias comes into play in this because Uh, What confirmation bias is, is it is the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms or supports one's prior beliefs or values. And so for these religious leaders that Jesus is talking to, he's trying to correct them and say, you have not managed the vineyard well to expand on the parable. But they don't want to interpret and understand things in a way that contradicts what they already know. In fact, they're trying to find ways to trap Jesus, to make Jesus disappear so that they can remain firmly cemented in their prior beliefs and prior understanding. Now, confirmation basis means that we tend to agree with whatever we've heard first, whatever we've been taught first. And when we're presented with new information, if we think back to that John C. Maxwell quote about when we only change when we learn enough, Sometimes we have to learn a whole lot more to make a change than we would have to learn to keep us on whatever our current track was. See, it's hard to change our minds. We naturally resist change. And in fact, I want to wrap up our time here to together by talking about a time when I actually had to confront my own confirmation bias, where I had to confront the way that I was understanding things. And, and I hope in this that you might be able to see sometimes how our perspectives might need to shift and change see i used to think that the kingdom of heaven was only talking about the afterlife that when jesus was talking about these parables he was just talking about our eternal destiny he was just talking about heaven he was just talking about the afterlife that they they didn't really apply to here and now And in fact, that kind of expanded into thinking that this world that we're in right now doesn't actually matter because all that matters is the destination. All that matters is where we're going. All that matters is the afterlife. Now, don't get me wrong. Heaven is real and exists, and life after death and being resurrected with Christ is real. But I had put all my eggs in that basket. And I was reading this book, and this book is called Surprised by Hope. It's one of the books that has... Shaped my understanding of God in many ways. And N.T. Wright is honestly the world's foremost New Testament theologian and biblical scholar. He's a bishop and he's written, I think, over 70 some books. And anytime I've read something he's written, it's always opened my eyes in a way that I just kind of go, wow, we are so blessed to be able to have someone like N.T. Wright that is explaining and teaching us in today's world. And about midway through this book, there's this portion where he talks about the kingdom of heaven. And as I read this, I can still remember that day of just being like, I have been completely wrong. The information, what I learned from N.T. Wright, overcame my confirmation bias. And I actually want to read you these quotes. And I know you don't have the advantage of everything that he's written before this point in the book, but but I hope that this maybe means something to you as well. But N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, We have seen at several points in this book that the normal Christian understanding of kingdom, especially the kingdom of heaven, is simply mistaken. God's kingdom and the kingdom of heaven mean the same thing, the sovereign rule of God to earth. Then he goes on, he says, This is what the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit are all about. They are designed not to take us away from this earth, but rather to make us agents of the transformation of this earth. And then a little later, uh, a few paragraphs later, he says this. He says, Faced with his beautiful and powerful creation in rebellion, God longed to set it right, to rescue it from continuing corruption and impending chaos, and to bring it back into order and fruitfulness. God longed, in other words, to reestablish his wise sovereignty over the whole creation which would mean a great act of healing and rescue. See, what this made me realize is that God, has, in his relationship with his creation, he doesn't want to see his creation disappear and devolve into chaos. In fact, our world, as broken as it is in so many ways, God wants to restore it. And this great act of healing and rescue began with God himself putting on flesh, coming into the world to make a new way open. And Jesus taught about the kingdom because that's what he was creating, a kingdom of relationship. In fact, the kingdom of heaven is not a kingdom of authoritarian rule. It's not an empire. It is a kingdom of rescued and healed relationships of God rescuing and healing his relationship with the world, God healing and rescuing his relationship with people, of our relationships with each other, and our relationship with God being rescued and healed. This is what the kingdom of heaven is about, is about rescue and healing. And so when Jesus tells a parable, like that parable of the tenant farmers, their relationship with the owner of the vineyard needed to be rescued. The servants were sent, and they could have taken a step towards reconciliation by paying the landowner what he was due because he was the one who owned the vineyard. But instead, they killed the servants, and they killed his son. And then when the landowner came back, he needs to replace those tenant farmers and to find new tenants who will bear fruit. See, that's a picture of relationships needing to be rescued and healed and the landowner coming back to make that possible and so nt wright summarizes it this way he says the gospel is the story of god's kingdom being launched on earth as it is in heaven generating a new state of affairs in which the power of evil has been decisively defeated the new creation has been decisively launched And Jesus' followers have been commissioned and equipped to put that victory and that inaugurated new world into practice. See, this is why the kingdom of heaven is such an important piece of our faith to understand. Because it's what makes us realize that God's mission on earth is active now. It is not just about getting out of earth and getting to heaven about the afterlife. And those things are great. And I look forward to when I get to see God face to face. But there is a lot of work to do here now. In fact, this work here now is a gospel work of redemption and restoration, of healing and rescue. And that's the kind of work that gets me excited. That's the kind of work that when you read the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church, you're seeing the early church working out this kingdom theology of working out what does it mean to rescue and heal relationships as they go and they proclaim the gospel to people who have never heard it before. That's why I get excited and fired up when I read through the book of Acts because we're seeing it firsthand. That's what they were creating. And it leads us to ask this question, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do to see that kingdom become real now? because I don't want us to make the mistake that the Pharisees did. I don't want us to make the mistake that the religious leaders of the first century did, because Jesus was trying to get the religious leaders and the Pharisees to realize that despite their good intentions to preserve their faith, they had missed the point of a rescued relationship with God. And so we have to ask this question, where does our understanding of God and his mission need some correction? Are there places in our understanding places in our understanding of scripture in understanding of what god's doing that we actually need to say do i have it right there's been numerous times in my journey and my understanding where i've i've had these moments of like man that is a huge amount of correction that i really needed and when that correction happens i have the choice of saying is this an external change is this something being forced on me Or is this an internal change? Have I just learned enough that I want to change? And maybe if you've been part of Grand Valley for a while, some of these things, you're like, yeah, Brian, you've talked about this before. And that's because whenever I see my own faith growing, I just want to share that. And that's why it comes out in our messages and our podcast, because I hope that it's inspiring you too. But the second question is a little tougher. How are we learning to become aware of our own biases when it comes to our faith? Because that day when I was reading this book, I could have just tossed the book aside and said, no, no, this N.T. right guy, he's out to lunch. What I, what I was taught as a kid, what I was taught earlier, and what I kind of pieced together, that's what's correct. Not this bishop and scholar and guy with more degrees than I can remember what they are. Our biases can cause us to reject truth. And we need to be really careful about that. Now, it's not to mean that everything we see and hear is truth. It's certainly not the case. But are we testing it? Are we seeking wisdom? Back in June, we did a series talking about how do we read the Bible, and we talked about how really the Bible's goal is to lead us to wisdom. And so are we leaning into wisdom to discern what is true and what is not? Are we overcoming those cognitive biases that we have? Because when we do, when we let God reveal new things to us, it's exciting. It's exciting to see what God is doing to rescue and redeem and heal relationships. And that's the kingdom work that I want to be part of. That's the kingdom work that I want to see transform your life, to transform your family and your friendships. That's the kind of kingdom work I want to see transform our neighborhoods and our cities and our world as we understand that this is what the kingdom is about. So let me just pray for us that we would lean into that. And so I don't know if you're a praying person or not, but I just want to encourage you to maybe close your eyes and and pray this along with me, if this is something that you can pray. Saying, God, thank you that you came to rescue and heal our relationships. And most of all, that you came to rescue the relationship between you and between us. And God, I pray that we could be agents of your kingdom, that we could be the people that bear fruit, the people that are leading other people to have healed relations, people that are leading other people into knowing who you are. God, would we be able to see your kingdom that is already here around us become fulfilled and grown and encapsulate all of us with your presence and your mercy and your love. In your name, we ask for this. To come true amen folks that's all i got for today next week we are going to wrap up this series called simply kingdom i hope you have a great week and we'll see you online next sunday thanks for listening to our podcast if you know of someone that would benefit from hearing the message you just listened to would you do us a favor and share this podcast with them And while you're at it, please consider subscribing to be the first to hear when our podcast is updated. If you want to join in on Sundays, our services are streaming online at 11 a.m. Central. To find out more about our church, go to mygrandvalley.ca and you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for My Grand Valley. Thanks for listening.